All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, it's Black History Month. Um, I tell you that because you should read some of it. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, and so sometimes folks say, Jake, did you purposely pick all your heroes to be black? Uh, no, uh, there's actually a really good reason for it because they were the underdogs. They were uh, folks like Frederick Douglass, uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, Martin Luther King, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Harriet Tubman, I mean, we can list them all, right? Incredibly courageous rebels, progressives looking to overthrow an oppressive system. If they're not your heroes, mm, you should look into it. <laughs> <laughs> Do some self reflection. Um, so, uh, we want to bring on Derek Johnson back here, uh, president and CEO of the NAACP, and talk about the future. Uh, obviously, we'll have to touch on the past a little bit, but we also want to talk about how we can get things right going forward. So, Derek, it's great to have you back on TYT. Oh, good to be here. All right. So, uh, let's go a tiny bit backwards uh, in history, all the way to January 6th of this year. Um, and then we'll go to the Biden administration. So a lot of folks were surprised that some in the right way in this country wanted to use violence to overthrow democracy and hence equality. I was not at all surprised, I'm writing a whole book about this. If you look at the history of America, it is the right wing trying to take away equality and justice from certain people. Through violence. <laughs> so, uh, Derek, uh, you know, how did you take uh, January 6th and what's your perspective on it? Well, I wasn't surprised that that type of energy existed. I was surprised with the boldness in which they would go to the US Capitol and, and commit treason, acts of murder, harm people, and destroy federal property. Uh, that was shocking. It was also shocking that we were not prepared for what was obvious in the works for several weeks leading up to it. The New York Times today, but uh, or yesterday, have a great article about the 22 days leading up to the insurrection and all of the things that were being said and done to poison the minds of so many individuals to think that it was a patriotic, uh, patriotic um, uh, activity. To go and commit treason, which is a which is no different than the Confederacy thinking that they was they were fighting a noble war when in fact they took up arms against this government. And so it's unfortunate that that we are revisiting history in a way in which it could destroy our democracy, destroy our nation, and people must be held accountable. Look, I, I got to go to the thing that I always go to because it's it. It's so prevalent and, and overwhelming, which is the media reaction. So um, the reason why I say I'm not surprised is because, well, what did the right wing do before? Well, they committed treason against America, they attacked us, and they did it to make sure that people did not have equal rights. So when they tell me the right wing is patriotic, mm, I've got overwhelming evidence to the contrary. They literally attacked the United States of America. And that was not the left wing, that was definitely, definitely the right wing of this country. And then they did it in Jim Crow, again, violence upon violence and terrorism on top of terrorism to make sure that people didn't have equality and justice. They did it through the Southern strategy, but the media will not say that it's the right wing for fear of offending them. But <laughs> it's our lives that are on the line. Uh, as they worry about offending the feelings 
of right wingers in this country. So obviously I'm worked up about it, but but I'm curious what your take on the media is, and they're in my opinion they're nonstop false equivalency. Well, the media, both traditional media, cable media, but social media. Now, this past summer, we joined with Anti-Defamation League, Color Change, and several other groups, Free Press, and we organized Stop Pay for Profit campaign because we recognized that social media platforms such as Facebook was making a profit off of division. The power of social media without any regulatory oversight, without any guardrails, it was the super spreader that created January 6th. Fox News is a problem. Talk radio is a problem. When you're talking about the spread of hate, we have evidence upon evidence how social media platforms not only promoted division, they recruited members, they plotted uh, uh, terroristic actions, and they caused harm and murdered people. The Boogaloo Boys in the Bay Area, what took place, uh, took place in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and they threatened our democracy. And those are the very things we say that will happen if they didn't put the guardrails in place. And so whether it's social media, whether it's broadcast media with false equivalencies, whether it's, it's cable news, we have to ensure that we protect our democracy and protect people. And this notion of false equivalency should go out the door. What is the thing to keep people safe? You cannot scream fire in a crowded theater. Why? Because people can be harmed. We should not allow right-wing terrorists define what should be appropriate in terms of speech when people are being harmed, have been harmed. And quite frankly, there are many of us who are still under threat of being harmed. Yeah, last thing on this, uh, and then we'll move on to the, the Biden administration. Um, you know, One of the things that bothered me most, and we showed it on the show uh, several times, was the overwhelming force when there was a Black Lives Matter protest in DC. Uh, and it was uh, literally an army showed up and we showed the pictures of dressed in military fatigues, etc. Uh, and and no one had threatened violence there. <laughs> and and then when Trump and his right wing goons actually talked a lot about violence ahead of time and, and a lot more people came up, there was almost no police presence. So uh, talk to us about that disparity that permeates law enforcement throughout the country. You know, in the case of the Capitol January 6th, one must wonder whether or not there were there was collusion with law enforcement, with the military, to allow such breach on our nation's capital. The Black Lives Matter peaceful protest that prior summer was some five miles away. There was no threat to the Capitol, and yet you had reinforced military presence. But when there was a clear and direct threat to individuals who preside as policymakers, including Republicans, because there was a guillotine brought to hang the vice president. Nothing was done. You had the regular force. I worked on Capitol Hill. I know what it means to get in a Capitol. It's not a difficult thing to navigate. They have the equipment, they have the personnel, they have the training, and yet they were not prepared, even though Two, three weeks prior, there was much planning on social media saying that this would take place, transition to Biden. It's going to be incumbent upon the new administration and the Department of Justice to hold people accountable. We cannot soft step this. We soft step domestic terrorism when it came to Timothy McVeigh. We soft step so many acts of violence, whether it was in Charlottesville 
or in that synagogue in Pittsburgh or the church in South Carolina. The face of domestic terrorism isn't African Americans, it isn't Muslim, it isn't a foreign nation. It is individuals who are born bred here who feel a level of entitlement. And if they don't get their way, they seek to take up arms and hurt people. We have to hold people accountable. And that's going to be important for this new administration to do as aggressively as he campaigned for office. So we're talking to Derek Johnson, he's the president of the NAACP. Uh, so um, speaking of the Biden administration, they've gotten started. Um, so uh, what's your take on their initial uh, couple of steps here? You know, I am pleased with the direction. It was it was eerie different from January 6th to January 20th and January 21st. The whole dynamic changed. The air of, of cooperation shifted. The feeling that we probably can get our democracy to working properly once again. The harm of the prior four years must be repaired. And as announcement, appointment announcements being made, people felt good. I have friends in the Native American community who had a sense of pride and inclusion when they heard the announcement of the Secretary of Interior, the first ever Native American to be appointed. I am really excited about some of the other appointments. The president committed that his cabinet will be the most diverse cabinet in the history of any president, and he's proven to be correct. We are pushing and have been pushing for racial equity czar, so to ensure that there is equity across all communities and to embed that portfolio inside of domestic policy council with Susan Rice that ensure that things would take place. So it's a great start, but there's so much more work to get done. So Derry, let's talk about the domestic policy council. For folks who don't know, what is that and why are you excited about it? Well, domestic policy council is the, the, the set of individuals headed by Susan Rice who actually will review domestic policy and advise the president on what approaches, what strategies, what priorities, what priorities should take place. They will have the convening power of cabinet secretaries to sit down and talk about interagency cooperations around big policy opportunities. That is a huge, huge position in terms of designing the outcome and success of this administration. It's through this prism that the public policy is being considered and recommendations are coming to the president for implementation, whether it's executive action, whether it's administrative or regulatory actions, or actual legislation that's being passed. It is a strong seat to move legislation and policy in this nation. So what are some of the policies that you hope they are considering in that council? Well, we have a huge looming crisis with student loan debt. That must be addressed. Uh, depending on what number you look at, 1.2, 1.9 trillion dollars in student loan debt. It is robbing our young people and people, professionals, from the opportunity to be fully productive. But it's also a huge stimulus opportunity. If we want to stimulate the economy, free students up, free young people up, free young professionals up from paying three, four, five hundred dollars a month in student loan payment. That allows them to free, clean up their credit and fully engage again. Think about all of the teachers and the individuals we want to be in the classrooms who can no longer be in the classrooms because you cannot suppress the wages of teachers and you saddle them with student loan debt. Here's an opportunity to do the right thing so people can do well. In fact, 
1.9 trillion dollars is equal to the current stimulus that's being uh, considered, and it's far less than the other four stimulus that were passed and what we gave to corporate America. So it's actually 1.9 trillion. The high end of that is also the same exact number uh, that was the tax cuts for the rich that Donald Trump passed. So uh, they they always say, oh no, we don't have money for uh, you know students. No way. Well, you had money for millionaires, so you know. And and now, of course, the right wing is instantly attacking the domestic policy council. New York Post, Michael Barone wrote that the point of it is to judge everyone by the color of their skin. Um, so you just said student loan debt. You didn't say black student loan debt. You said student loan debt for everybody. So you know, how do you handle these right wingers who who constantly attack everything that's going to help? The general population by making their racism appear as if it's a racial issue that's a problem for us. Well, the, the, the reverse argument have, they have used effectively. But just think about this last administration. The first two years they controlled both bodies of Congress and the White House, they couldn't get anything done. The next two years, they, they had control of the White House and the Senate. They couldn't get anything done. Uh, these are people who cannot get anything done other than criticize what's being done. If you want to have progress, we need to look at ways to ensure that the average American can have a clear opportunity to eke out a positive future for their families, their households, and their communities. Much of what we've seen on January 6th are a set of individuals who feel disengaged or disempowered because life, life realities have shifted on them. It's shifted on them because some of the very people they're listening to promote and push policies that's not in their benefit. The average protesters probably are working poor or, or, or barely middle income individuals who are out there fighting for America that was 1950s in reality when we should be fighting for America that looked towards 2030. That is a part of how we should approach this, making sure that the minimum wage is at a minimum of $15. If I have my choice, is indexed with inflation. So as the inflation go up, the minimum wage go up, making sure that job protections are in place and we can ensure that organized labor can spread and not suppress the voice of workers. It is ironic that Japanese companies come to this country, German companies come to this country, they set up auto plants, they set up other plants, and they allow their workers in those countries to organize and collectively bargain. But when they get here, Southern legislators prevent them from doing it. For our workers, that's not about race. That's about fairness. That's about growth. That's about taking care of the American workers and ensuring that we have a positive future. So uh, the, NAACP, the NAACP, and Derek, you just said it, you're in favor of higher wages and, and a higher minimum wage. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to ask it in the absurd way because, like, they really believe this stuff. So, you're not saying higher wages for only for black people. You're saying higher wages for everyone, right? Everyone, right? You, you know, I grew up in Detroit, right? Henry Ford realized that he had to pay his workers a fair wage because the better he paid his workers, the more cars he can sell. He also recognized the change in demographics in the city of Detroit. He had a process where African Americans can come and join the, the, the labor force because it is in the best interest of our corporations' growth. You cannot have a set of corporate uh, greedy individuals 
who are seeking to make profit and not care for the workers because eventually the, the workers won't be able to afford the products. There is an opportunity for mutual benefit. We seen it from the New Deal policies all the way to 1980. We've seen the biggest growth in the middle class. We've seen the biggest growth in our economy. We've seen the biggest growth in, in, in opportunities. And that was about public policy and tax policy. That came, then growth happened. What we've seen after 1980 is a, 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 a retrenching of all of those policies, whether it's the protections around Financial Services Act, the, 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 the targeting of labor unions, all of those things starting under Reagan. And what we begin to see is a drastic shifting of the wealth in this country from the average middle income American to the super rich. Now we have the disparities that's akin to the Gilded period, to the akin to 1925. We have to address that. It's not about race, but race has been used to justify these regressive policies. And for African Americans, we just want to be a part of the growth of this nation and the future uh, 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 prosperity. It's the least you can ask for. And, uh, and, and I just, I don't know how to get it through the heads of right wingers. We're trying to help you. We're trying to lift your wages up. If you're looking for who caused the problem, don't look down, look up. The corporations gave money to the politicians. They're the ones who set the rules so that your wages wouldn't go up. Okay, but I know you've got more hopes and aspirations for the Biden administration. What else would you like them to do? But first of all, we have to hold accountable those who created the domestic terrorism. But we also need to take a serious look of free public education for all of our children. We will not be competitive in a global economy if we continue to, to really gut out the, the quality education for all children. It is, it is a losing proposition to think we can maintain a 1950s style education system for children who need to be prepared for a technological future. It is appalling to see what's taking place in this country when you compare it to Finland, or you compare it to Canada, or you compare it to Japan or Australia, where they recognize they need to be building an economy and a workforce for the future. Therefore, they're educating their young people in that preparation. And we're not, we're thinking that if my district that has been segregated is doing better than the district over there, that's, that's majority other community, then we're doing great. When your district that may be higher performing than the district next door, but it's barely breaking the mid range when you put it on a global scale. Fannie Lou Hamer had a saying that if you have your foot on my neck in the ditch, we're both in a ditch. And until we get out this ditch, we're, we're, we're both gonna suffer by all of the forces that's around us. And then this economy is not company versus company, is nation versus nation. This is a global economy, not a national economy, not a state economy. Um, so, of course, I agree. <laughs> so, let me let me ask something else, Derek. Uh, is there anything for so far that you've seen from the Biden administration that gives you pause uh, that ha that has you concerned yet? Concerned. I, I, someone asked that question about a couple of days ago. We haven't even got into a month of this administration. Well, we are two weeks out, and so I don't want to have high expectations. And then I'll say, oh, it's two weeks, and he hadn't turned over the concrete on. Concrete on Third Street. Let's let's be real here, right? We he have what all of five to seven of his of his uh, uh, nominees 
confirmed at this point. So it's so early in the process. So I, I am inspired with the fact that he's tapped the most diverse cabinet and perhaps one of the uh, a set of individuals who are really competent and capable. Now let's support and see what happens next. Yeah, and uh, and the, you know, look, I'm always uh, skeptical of of uh, more establishment Democrats to keep it real, right? But yeah. on the other hand, when you look at it, uh, and they sent uh, Vice President Kamala Harris to West Virginia and Arizona to pressure Mansion and Cinema to get uh, COVID relief done, I was very encouraged by that. I thought that's a very strong move by uh, Vice President Harris. What did you think about that? It shows that she's a skilled negotiator and politician. Here's someone who didn't wake up one day and happened to be African American and South Asian. Here's someone who studies, she knows her craft. Uh, she's gotten elected local DA, state of California, uh, uh, state attorney, a US senator, and now she's sitting in the second most powerful seat in the, in the, in the world. She's no, she knows what she's doing. She's not there because she's black. She's there because she's good and knows her job. Who happens to be black? Yeah, and one last thing here. You know, look, I wanted Barack Obama to be stronger, but I knew that he was in a tough spot because he's the first African American president. There's certain expectations, et cetera, that goes along with that, and stereotypes, et cetera. But there's an argument to be made, and I wonder what you think about it. That he bought her, bought Kamala Harris the ability to be stronger. And and so since he set the stage and, and he set the precedent, it allows her to now say, okay, let's do this the right way. And, and let me show you what strength is like. Well, also what he did was the Obama administration the first two years is a lesson that is well learned. You can't negotiate with people who are unwilling to negotiate with you. When you have the power, you better exercise the power. You need to do it swiftly. We have 14 months to make it happen. And I'm sure with the president, vice president, they're going to make it happen in the 14 months that they have. All right, and the NAACP is the largest and most storied African American organization in the country. Supported in any way that you can. President and CEO Derek Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on TYT again. Thank you for the opportunity.